This program is part of Film Geek Radio. Visit filmgeekradio.com for more great shows. Film, The Final Frontier. These are the voyages of the podcast Cinema Fix. It's mission to explore strange new genres, to seek out new ideas and film theories, to boldly go where no critic has gone before. Sorry about that last note there. That was a little uh, off-key. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of off-key. <laughs> it's cute, though. It's cute, though. Hey, movie addicts. Welcome to Cinema Fix. You're start for the purest, highest quality movie reviews on the block. Uh, I'm your captain, Andrew Johnson, and I'm joined today by my science officer, Monica Castillo. Oh, hell no. <laughs> I was surprised you didn't sing along with me and, and hum along with my, my little intro there, Monica. I'm kind of disappointed. It's because you're my Vulcan science officer and you have no emotions and no sense of humor, no. right? As long as I'm not the m- missile specialist science officer. Okay. <laughs> okay. We'll definitely get to that. Oh, this is part two of episode number 50 of Cinema Fix, focused on the movie Star Trek Into Darkness. So if you're looking for part one, you are listening to the wrong file. Go away, go listen to part one. If this is your first time listening to the show, basically Cinema Fix is the show on Film Geek Radio devoted to discussion of mainstream blockbuster films. And each week we release an episode in two parts. The first part is a general spoiler-free discussion, and the second part, which you're listening to right now, is the more in-depth analysis of the film, complete with spoilers, and it's designed to be listened to after you've seen the film, or at least after you've heard part one. Again, this is part two, so if you don't want to be spoiled, stop listening now and go check out part one of our episode on Star Trek Into Darkness. I'm not going to bother repeating what the plot is. We're assuming that you've seen J.J. Abrams' latest installment in his uh, Star Trek reboot, but before we really dive into our discussion, here's a clip. Let me explain what's happening here. You are a criminal. I watched you murder innocent men and women. I was authorized to end you. And the only reason why you are still alive is because I am allowing it. So shut your mouth. Captain, you're going to punch me again over and over till your arm weakens. Clearly you want to, so tell me. Why did you allow me to live? We all make mistakes. No. I surrender to you because, despite your attempt to convince me otherwise, you seem to have a conscience, Mr. Kirk. If you did not, then it would be impossible for me to convince you of the truth. 2317461111. Coordinates not far from Earth. If you want to know why I did what I did, go and take a look. Give me one reason why I should listen to you. I can give you 72. And they're on board your ship, 
Captain. They have been all along. All right, Monica, I've got a lot of stuff I want to, to talk about in regards to Star Trek Into Darkness, but I'm going to throw it over to you. Is there is there anything that really stuck out to you or any particular element that you'd like to, to touch on first? Man, I'm looking at your Christmas list here, and you are not a happy boy. I think you should go first. Really, I think you got to get some stuff off your chest. <laughs> I'll be like the lieutenant captain or whatever, sidekick. Well, the first thing we should talk about, it's the elephant in the room. It's the thing that the studios and the marketing did their best to hide and to keep secret, and that is the identity of the villain. So we should just go ahead and say, in case you didn't already know, and for some reason you're listening to this because you haven't seen the film, the villain's Khan from Star Trek The Wrath of Khan. Super spoiler time. <laughs> Monica, I gotta ask you... What did you think of that reveal that this guy, John Harrison, his name actually isn't John Harrison. That's just a code name. That was a publicity thing. Yeah. His real name is actually Khan Nianan Singh or whatever his full name is. How did you feel about that? Um, I kind of knew it because it was what was on the rumor mill since like, oh, I don't know. The movie started filming year and a half ago so then when it just happened i was like i knew it so i don't know it was just oh, okay well so there's that but there's also i have to admit this is confession time i have not really seen much of the first series and i have not seen the star trek films you haven't seen the wrath of khan I have not seen The Wrath of Khan. Okay, Monica, you're no longer allowed to make fun of me for not reading The Great Gatsby in high school if you have not seen The Wrath of Khan. I'm revoking your Gatsby <laughs> <laughs> mocking rights. I actually, I, I, I have seen all the Star Trek movies, but I saw them years and years ago, and I barely remember most of them. Um, and I have seen probably around two dozen episodes of the original series. And that is the extent of my Star Trek knowledge. Okay. So I'm familiar with the Khan character to a certain extent. And I sort of guessed going into the movie that the villain was probably going to turn out to be Khan. And honestly, I kind of wish that they had just not made it con. They should have just stuck with a regular new villain. Um, I think that would have worked out a lot better. Yeah, parallel in the universe. Make it different. Right. I, I mean, wasn't that the whole point of the 2009 reboot was to basically say, we can do whatever we want now. We don't have to adhere to the original canon. We can just go off and do something completely different. I mean, this movie is filled yep. to the brim with references to the Wrath of Khan, and it's completely unnecessary. And all it really did is make me think, you know what? I want to go back and rewatch the Wrath of Khan because that was a much better movie than this. <laughs> Aw. Well, now I really feel like I should watch Wrath of Khan because it's, you know, apparently much better than this. <laughs> so I've been told by everybody else who's seen Wrath of Khan. I don't know how I manage... To miss that. My mom was a big Next Generation fan, so I did see Star Trek Next Generation. 
Well, I'm going to tell you the scene at which Star Trek Into Darkness just completely went off the rails for me. I was on board for a good chunk of the movie, probably at least the first third. But there is a scene probably around, I don't know, 40% of the way through the movie when they've picked up Khan off of Kronos. They've got him in his little prison cell, and he finally reveals that he's Khan. And he gives this massive monologue, which is actually in keeping with the character. In in The Wrath of Khan, uh, the character of Khan actually does like to talk a lot. But the monologue here, it's just so much of an exposition dump. And there's so much information to process yes. that I could not follow it. And honestly, I think it's because I, – I think it might have been easier to follow – if you've seen The Wrath of Khan recently, or if you've seen the original episode of the TV series in which Khan appeared, because all I remembered about Khan from the movie, from the original Wrath of Khan, was that he was, like, exiled to some planet, and he was mad at Kirk and wanted revenge for something. Yeah. I did not remember that he was frozen in cryosleep and was actually a genetically engineered human. <laughs> Who was like has like super abilities? All and and there was like this war, like this eugenics war, at some point in in Trek mm-hmm. history that occurred, and and Khan was like this really savage warlord who had been genetically altered. Mm-hmm. I did not remember any of that. So when Benedict Cumberbatch suddenly shows up and is like, oh, by the way, I'm 300 years old. I was frozen in hibernation. I was floating in space for some reason. Uh, apparently he's a criminal, but they don't really reveal that. You're just supposed to assume that he was a bad guy, I think. He's wears all black. Of course he's a bad guy. <laughs> That's true. I was picked up by Marcus after Vulcan was destroyed. I was made to work on on weapons. I tried to smuggle the rest of my team out on these missiles, but I was discovered, so I escaped to Kronos and want revenge. Like, all of this information <laughs> just comes pouring out in this one scene, and I was just like, whoa, 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 slow down. Back up to the part where you're 300 years old. Yeah, that was fun because, again... I had no frame of reference for Khan, so when he was just like, story time, I was like, alright, cool. I'm just going to take this and uh, accept it and not question it. <laughs> you say that you just sort of went along with it because you weren't unfamiliar w- you, you weren't very familiar with the, the character. Did you find it confusing at all? Um, not really. I just took it all at face value. Okay. So maybe I'm just slow this summer blockbuster season. I think you just you really want to find a lot of deep and dark meanings, and it's just like, no, I'm really upset at this guy because he did this to my people, and I want revenge. So that's the gist of what I got, and I went with it, and then they went and attacked that guy's ship. So, yeah. I don't know. Maybe I need screenwriters to hold my hand a little bit. <laughs> I'm I'm starting to feel like if there's only like one line of dialogue mentioning a key plot point, yeah, that there needs to be more information. Otherwise, I I don't get it. Like if Khan says I'm 300 years old and then moves on, yeah, I just want to be like, no, 
You're out. What? <laughs> Go back. Maybe I watch too much sci-fi, and when someone just walks by and says, "I'm I'm 900 years old," I'm like, "All right, that's cool." Moving on. Doctor Who. I mean. <laughs> Also, as far as I know, the the whole super blood aspect, the blood that can heal people. So like midichlorines? <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah, basically, it's midichlorines. It came in this it's the, the now the new parallel universe. So does that mean midichlorines exist now? Yes, it, it's the magical thing that can uh, solve everything pretty much. Yeah, pretty much. I like how when it's used in the opening scene, uh, when we first see Khan, he uses it to heal a little girl. Yeah. Which in turn inspires the father to commit an act of terrorism. But it's so sweet. (laughs) Well, that's what I'm saying. I liked the moral ambiguity there. Yeah. That that created. On the other hand... By the end of the film, it seemed like the super blood just existed solely to be a plot device because they were going to mirror Wrath of Khan and kill off a major character. Yeah. But this time, they didn't have the balls to actually go through with it. So they were like, oh, we, we, we can't really kill off Kirk. Yeah. That would be too shocking. That would be, like, as shocking as killing Spock off in Wrath of Khan. <laughs> we can't do that. But they really did kill Spock at the end of Wrath of Khan, apparently. Yes, they killed him off, and he was dead until number three. So for two years, or three years, however long it took between films, Spock was dead. Yep. In this movie, Captain Kirk's dead for maybe, I don't know, 15 minutes? And then they and then you know he's going to be brought back? Yeah. There was no weight to that scene at all, in my opinion. Did you ever have an inkling that they were actually going to kill Kirk and leave him dead. No, not for a second, because I I saw that happen and I just went, no way. They're not going to switch the series over to just the Spock show. Like, that wouldn't fly. And it seems like they've made it more so into a dynamic duo, like a buddy cop thing, more so than the original from what I can gather. Because it used to be a very clear definition of, this is the captain. And so, sure, he had, like, McCoy and others there pretty close to him, but it's, it seems Spock has really taken more of a lead role in this series. No, in the original series, from what I've seen, yes, yeah, Spock was a huge character, and he was a, he was a fan favorite. Well, yeah, I knew he was a fan favorite, but I'm saying, I thought, like, McCoy was more prominent. He was prominent. I'd say they were either equal or or Spock, as the series progressed, got, okay. was a little bit more prominent. And he did have a, a very close relationship with Kirk. And anyways, by the time Wrath of Khan came around, I mean, those characters had been together on screen for years. Mm-hmm. So killing Spock off was like a huge deal. When they quote-unquote kill off Kirk in this movie, they've only been together a couple hours on screen, you know? Like, yeah. in the first movie, they had uh, they were kind of mad at each other for most of the film, and then they became sort of friends. And old Spock came from the future and was like, oh, you guys are going to be really good friends, but we haven't really had time to see that friendship develop. Yeah. So when they kill off Kirk, there wasn't a whole lot of weight to that, in my opinion, especially because they immediately showed us the blood 
bringing the little furry Tribble back to life. Yeah. So it's like, oh, okay, problem solved. Yeah, it was too quick. There's a part of me that probably still would have been angry if they had killed off Kirk just because it would have been like, great, now are we going to get Star Trek Three: The Search for Kirk? And they're just going to keep going, basically <laughs> copying all the old films. <laughs> yeah. But at the same time, it would have added some weight to things, especially if, if, I mean, again, this is an alternate timeline, so they can do whatever they want. I mean, they could theoretically kill off Kirk and that would be the end, let that be the end of it. And just be like, there's no Kirk anymore. We're going to do something new. Deal with it. Yeah. But no, nothing, nothing that ballsy on display here. But I'm curious, as someone who has not seen The Wrath of Khan, how did that play to you? It was a little silly. I don't know. A little silly? Yeah. Here's my thing. Uh, This great old spaceship, no one has safety (laughs) (laughs) fail-safes. Oh, I guess things are blowing up, sure. We haven't figured out quite... And it was... The whole thing was just knocked out of place. Was that just that simple in Wrath of Khan? Just had to knock it back straight? (laughs) I can't remember what exactly Spock had to do Oh man! in Wrath of Khan. But it was basically like, yes, I have to go in here and the door's going to close behind me and lock and I won't be able to get out. Yeah. And, you know, here you have Zachary Quinto giving his con, you know, which of course... He's in touch with his human side. Yes, and of course Kirk said, yelled that in the, uh, in, in the film, The Wrath of Khan. Yeah. And something about... Zachary Quinto's facial expression or the way he said it. I I don't know. It was a little laughable. Oh, see, I was already laughing at that part because it was... They did that mirror scene where there was hand-to-hand. That is taken directly from the film. Okay. The Wrath of Khan. Like, it is almost a shot-by-shot recreation, I believe, of that scene. It was so cute and bromancy. And then when he dies and Spock cries out, God, <laughs> I lost <Yeah>. it. <laughs> maybe it plays better in the original because it's maybe the I, I assume it's slightly more hokey. From what I recall, it does play very well in the original. Okay, because this one, I was not behaving in the theater and I was surrounded <laughs> by fans. Was there a lot of music playing in Star Trek Into Darkness during that scene? I can't remember. Um, I believe it was. Because I believe, I could be wrong about this, it's been a long time mm-hmm. since I've seen Wrath of Khan, but my recollection is that that scene occurs and it's very dramatic because it's basically silence. Mm. And there's no music and it's just them basically saying goodbye to yeah. each other after all these years of being together. And it's where Spock says the line, the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few. Mm-hmm which they referenced again in this film, Star Trek Into Darkness, Into Darkness, in the first scene, when it looks like Spock yeah. might die in the volcano. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, in Wrath of Khan, I just remember it being much more emotional <laughs> in that film. Um, it, just, it just really just seemed like pandering in this movie to me. It's, it seemed like the writers were saying, oh, we could do anything we want, but we're just going to pander to, to, to what fans already know and and try to repeat the same thing. Yeah. It just didn't seem very original to me. I didn't pick up on the fan service because I wasn't aware of it. Right, right. <laughs> but, but I knew there was a lot of parts because I also sat next to a friend who 
was really, really into the original series, so he was like, oh, that's just from there! Oh, that's just from there! Oh, they just took that! So, that was my own sideshow. Uh, he was also losing it at the at the goodbye scene. I don't know if it was like just... Like, in a good way or a bad way? It was the way that I was holding our mouths and please don't Please don't laugh. Please don't laugh. Please don't laugh. We are in the front row. Please don't laugh. Please don't laugh. We won't get popcorn thrown at us. Please don't laugh. Well, getting back to to Khan, the other big plot hole that a lot of people have pointed out is that, you know, at the end of the movie, Spock has to go take on Khan to get the blood to save Kirk. Yeah. And for, for some reason in this movie, there's this repeated thing where they can never beam the people they want up to them they always have to beam someone from the crew down to go get to them. get it yeah something's wrong with the uh with the beaming device here and it'll only go one way we only have enough energy to get you out of the ship not back in <laughs> yes it's very strange it's like we gotta we gotta check your uh, gas mileage there you're not doing so hot spot goes down to to confront khan and he doesn't need to though because at no point in the film do they ever say Khan is the only one of these genetically altered humans with super blood well they did just throw all the rest of the genetic uh, superhumans onto his ship right was, was that no, oh, no, 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 no no they no. took off the bodies <gasps> yeah, yeah they took oh, off the bodies but you know what they didn't want to def- defrost them why was that going to take too much time? I was just like, wait, wait, wait! You have seventy-two other people that are supposedly the same as Khan here on the ship. Can't you just take some of their blood? I'm going to throw out a theory. Maybe okay. it's because they were afraid of unleashing another Khan into the world. Surely, there's a way you can get a vial of blood from them without waking them up. Sure, I've seen Jurassic Park. <laughs> yeah, like there's got to be a way to do that. <laughs> but no <Steady> the amber <laughs> let's just throw logic out the window and have spock the supposedly logical one <laughs> go take on khan because he's all emotional and hurt right now <laughs> he'll be he'll he'll behave when he sees khan. doesn't he like yeah. beat the tar out of him or something on the ship when they finally gets a hold of him like he gets all emotional and starts reaming into yes him. yeah yeah he basically is going to kill khan until he's talked down until uhura shows up and is like no yeah don't do it we need his blood yeah Except you don't. <laughs> <But>. <laughs> That's a horror. Okay, so I had a problem with her this time. Last okay. last time, she was really cool. She was independent. You know, she rebuffed Kirk and, you know, thought, you know, she's, you know, had her, her own attitude or whatever. And for this one, I'm very mixed about her character. I am too. Okay. Because then all of a sudden it became her and her Spock's relationship it was the most reason why she came on screen. And that made me a little well, sad. Except for the part where she's like, oh, let me talk to the Klingons. I speak Klingon. That's why you brought me on the ship. And then it fails. And then it's masculinity and heroism and action to the rescue. Right. I mean, I did like that they included a scene where she did get to use her Klingon and actually serve a function. Christ, because that would have been awful if she was just another Alice Eve. <laughs> right, and we'll, we'll get to that in a minute. Yeah. But but you're right. A lot of her role in this movie was basically just to, to be in conflict with Spock. And I found some of that interesting. 
I found it interesting for a while, and then it was like, wait, that's it? Not going to hear from her again? I did think that they wrapped it up a little too quickly. Yeah. You know, when they're going down to Kronos or whatever, and they finally talk it out mm-hmm. <laughs> on the shuttle. Yeah. Like, uh, Kirk was like, guys, you're going to do this right now? And and I was like, guys, you're going to do this right now? Right. But uh, I I did think it was interesting in terms of Spock. I think the film was trying to create an interesting arc for Spock that it didn't quite fully execute perfectly, where he admits to her, I could feel these things, Mm -hmm. but I have chosen not to feel because it is too painful. And it is the one moment in the film when they refer back to the destruction of Vulcan Mm -hmm. in the 2009 movie, which personally I feel like that should have been the focal point of this film i feel like a whole planet got destroyed mm-hmm. you know you can either take the star wars route and ignore that that happened <laughs> poor alderaan <laughs> yes <laughs> or you could actually try to see what effect that would have on a person to know i'm one of the last of my species and i have no place to call home anymore and i i, I wish that they had explored that a little bit more but i totally bought it when Spock basically said, I don't have a home. I've seen my planet get destroyed. I've seen people I love die. It's just easier not to feel things. Yeah. I thought that was a compelling character moment, much more so than the part when he sort of breaks that and is having his little meltdown at the end. Yeah, because it makes more sense for Kirk to be all emotional and cry out con than it does for spock right i mean well i mean it makes sense in the original film mm-hmm. oh i'm just saying character wise like kirk is the hothead or whatever well let's say the roles had been reversed mm-hmm. i still would buy it more in the original film again just because that came after years and years of seeing these two people work together mm and become close friends. Whereas here, yeah, they're friends, but they haven't known each other for that long. Am I really supposed to believe that Spock is going to react more strongly to the death of Kirk than he did in the first film to the annihilation of his planet? Yeah. He loses his mom in front of him, too. Right, but he keeps it together pretty well in the first film. Mm-hmm. Like, you can tell he's... he's about to crack in that movie, mm-hmm. but he's trying to put on a straight face and act like it, it doesn't affect him. Mm-hmm. And by, by the end of this movie, once Kirk dies, it's like all bets are off and he's just a crazy person. <laughs> he's out for blood. <laughs> Khan's blood. <laughs> I saw my mom die in front of me, but that doesn't affect me nearly as much as the death of this guy I've only known for a year or so. I'm telling you, man, this bro love is getting out of control. <laughs> Like, it's supplementing the family love and the ties. It's really just like, man, but he is my boy, you know? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Um, Also, getting back to, you mentioned Uhura. Let's talk about some of the other supporting characters in the film. Sulu, played by John Cho. He basically gets nothing to do. (laughs) Except for that one time that he's mean in the captain's chair. Yes, which was a cool scene, which was a nice that was moment cute. where he, yeah, and then that was it. Yeah, he becomes acting captain. Exit stage left. <laughs> he gets to make a big dramatic speech, but at no point in the movie do we really get to see him making really awesome decisions or struggling in his role as 
a captain. Yeah, not as much as poor Chekhov. <laughs> Chekhov, I hated what they did with Chekhov. They just put him in the boiler room. Have fun, kid. <laughs> yeah, Scotty resigns, so they send Chekhov to engineering, and he's struggling with things. And It's a one-joke wonder. Like it's it's, really- it is a one-joke thing. And again, what made the original reboot worked so well is each character got a scene where they did something really well mm-hmm. and they proved their value. Here, Chekhov is just running around, you know, doing the best he can, but if he's no Scotty when it comes to engineering. Yeah. So he he doesn't really come off like the most valuable crew member yeah. in this film. No, he's pretty expendable. Scotty, on the other hand, is given a lot to do. Which I'm kind of okay with. Simon Pegg is awesome. I, I'm okay with that. I, 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 I'm wondering if it's just because people like Simon Pegg, so they thought, okay, we'll expand his role in this one. Mm-hmm. I mean, he got more screen time than Sulu. Right. He got a lot more screen time than Sulu. Almost more or equal to McCoy. Oh, I'd say maybe even more. more. I mean, and that's another thing. McCoy basically was just around to make a few one-liners about Be all fuddy Jim. Daddy. Yeah. Yeah, and, and be like, Jim, we need to check your vitals. And then he does. He injects the little Tribble thing with the blood at the end. And that's that's all he really does. Not much development for him. Mm-hmm. Scotty, I mean, yeah, it's kind of a huge coincidence that Khan would give him the coordinates to this big ship and he'd be able to find it at just the right time and sneak on. And But I'm, I'm willing to suspend my disbelief for that. And I will say, the, uh, the sequence in which Khan and Kirk team up mm-hmm. they they have to go from airlock to airlock the, i thought that that was probably the best action sequence in the film yeah that was cool i did like that i really liked that scene and you've got you know kirk's helmet about to crack yeah. and i i thought it was really really well done but on the whole i felt like the supporting cast wasn't given a whole lot to do it was yeah. basically kirk spock and scotty yeah for the three main people yeah, and the uh, fun fun part for me, <laughs> my friend too, is that there were random people, random crew members that just joined the bridge at certain points. <laughs> so he would really? look at me and say, "Wait, we were she on the ship?" And it's almost towards the end of the movie, and all of a sudden, there's like this silver-haired extra that has no <laughs> speaking lines, but then she's like towards the front of the ship where she wasn't before, and it seemed like. People were rotating all the time. I didn't notice that. Maybe maybe they were rotating. I mean, it was pretty chaotic there. It's supposed to look super chaotic, which I would like never to be on a ship that's that chaotic at any point. Even when it's at a cruising altitude, it's there's still people running. Why are you running? <laughs> well, since we're on the subject of supporting characters, you mentioned Alice Eve's character. Oh, yes. Carol Marcus earlier. Let's talk about her, because... <laughs> Okay, all I'll say to start off is that considering how much they did not develop any of the other ca- characters in the film, mm-hmm. there was really no reason for her to be here. Nope. They could have cut her character completely, yep. and the movie probably would have progressed just fine. <laughs> um, and they would have had more time to develop some of the other side characters. She serves no function in this movie. Like, can you can you tell me one thing she does that they couldn't have had another character do? She screams when her father's head gets exploded. That is true. 
I found one. Okay. Because that d- diffusing the bomb scene was very anticlimactic. It's like, oh, this is a missile expert, and she's she's a commander of science or something. I can't remember her title. She's the second science officer. Yeah, there we go, science officer. That Kirk allows on board just because she's hot. Yeah, which I think would have been sufficient enough to show, oh, yeah, because he's a playboy. But... Okay, so there's the scene where she and McCoy are trying to figure out, you know, they're trying to get inside these these torpedoes, mm-hmm. and he gets his arm stuck. And it starts it starts counting down. It starts counting down, and all she does is, like, pull out this thing, pull out the core, and it's done. Yeah. <laughs> That's it. Took out the AA batteries, duh. Yeah, like, could, is there really no one else? Could they not have given that task to Chekhov or <laughs> Uhura or somebody else? You, you look bored. Come over. <laughs> yes. Oh, that was that other one. McCoy was brought along because he needed surgical precision. Is that, I guess, the the joke? Is <laughs> because he gets his hand stuck within seconds of opening yeah. the bomb. Yeah. But yeah, her character serves no purpose. Mm-hmm. I mean, they make a big deal out of, out of the fact that she's the admiral's daughter admiral marcus's daughter but that really that pays off in no meaningful way Mm -hmm. there's a scene where she confronts him and is like you can't blow up the enterprise i'm on the enterprise so he just beams her back to his ship so that was pointless yeah (laughs) never thought that those beam things actually work right (laughs) (laughs) so suddenly they work fine yeah on the other ship yeah just gotta hit it a few times man (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Gotta adjust the bunny ears. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> on <top. laughs> it's on the wrong frequency, man. I've reached the conclusion that she serves two purposes, none of which are valid. <laughs> the first is that her character, Carol Marcus, mm-hmm. I don't know if she actually shows up in Wrath of Khan or she's just talked about in Wrath of Khan. But in that film, it is revealed that she and Kirk had a fling when they were young, and she was the mother of his child. Oh, snap. So... Baby mama drama. It's possible that they only threw her in here just to set her up for Star Trek Three when she and Kirk will start to get romantic. But I sort of feel like if that's her only purpose, just wait until the third film and introduce her and have them start to get romantic then. Like, there's no development no, to this. No, because... J.J. Abrams thinks in episodes, and he has to have the story of the next one frameworked before leaving this one. I mean, I'm, I'm going to be honest. I don't think Kirk ogling her in her underwear is really a meaningful bit of development that couldn't have been left until the third film. Oh, no. Please, by all means. That's not... And let's be honest. That is her second purpose, which is just to be eye candy. Well, they used her in the trailer, right? Yes, that was that was like one of the key images in the trailer that got passed around the internet yeah. by horny fanboys everywhere. Look at Alice Eve in her underwear. And it is the defining scene of her character, honestly, the fact that she strips. Yeah, just keep going. It keeps sounding sadder and sadder the more you talk about it. Well, it is the most pointless scene in the film. Yeah. You know, and there are many things in the movie that could probably be cut or made more efficient. That scene is the most egregious in terms of its uselessness. Yeah. She doesn't really give a good explanation or, like, at least I don't remember a good one. She's just like, hold on, turn around, I'm going to change. 
There really isn't. It's supposed to, I think it's, I think it's supposed to be that when she was working with the, uh, the missile or whatever, her clothes were irradiated or something. So she had to change. Wait, was this changing like out of a blue dress into a black leotard thing? I don't, I can't even remember. Like the, yeah, there really is no context. Yeah, which I like that actually Devin Faraci took a still of Kirk's shirtless scene because that's the scene that J.J. Abrams also references to say, hey, but we also showed uh, a guy shirtless, Kirk is shirtless, so that's like objectification too. And his scene in the movie where he's shirtless is when he's getting out of a threesome. Yes. So at least there's a reason why he's shirtless. Yes. Can we talk about this more, Monica? I'm glad I have someone who's as sociologically minded as I am. Oh, bring it on. Because I've heard this argument brought up in defense of this scene before. Mm -hmm. You know, I've heard there's been a lot of people saying, oh, it's not sexist. It's just like a two second shot. That's not sexist. Or, oh, the male characters are objectified, too, because Kirk is shirtless, and as J.J. Abrams showed on Conan, there was a deleted scene of Khan in the shower looking menacing. I was going to say, this is a mean-ass shower. (laughs) (laughs) I thought it was going to be like, oh, it's Benedict Cumberbatch in a shower, and then it was just, like, not enjoyable at all. Yeah, he's uh, he's standing shirtless under the water, just glowering. <laughs> and even Conan puts on the like bouncing wow wow music in the background, yeah. and it's still nope. He's scaring me. <laughs> Turn it off. Why are we playing it twice? <laughs> so, can we talk a little bit about why this Alice Eve scene is offensive to a certain degree? Let's talk a lot about it. And the fact that male characters show flesh doesn't mean anything and doesn't justify it? Where should, where should we go first? <laughs> okay, okay. Well, first of all, can we just agree that if a female character is presented on screen solely for the purpose of titillating the audience... That is objectification. That it is objectification. That is the definition of an object. Yes, and most of the time, not all the time, there are film genres and directors and contexts in which it, I would not consider it gratuitous or offensive. Mm-hmm. But let's agree, at the very least, that most of the time it's objectification and it's offensive. Yes. Okay. That was easy. <laughs> and the fact that it's only two seconds doesn't matter. No, it doesn't. No, because it's still, it's still, it's still an image that gets you see it. So Benedict Cumberbatch's angry shower scene was cut. We didn't see that unless you happen to watch Conan. Right, and this shot was used in the trailers. It was used to market the film. Yeah. So they were using this image and this character. They're basically selling her. They're objectifying her and they're selling her. Yeah. To mass audiences, mm-hmm. which is a problem. Yes. And people have said that, oh, well, we saw Uhura in her underwear in the first film. Wasn't she changing? Like, over, like getting... She was changing. It, she was in, like, her room or something, right? Yes. Here's what I would say about that. Mm-hmm. I would say, one, it's still a little bit gratuitous in the 2009 film, and it is objectifying her a little bit. Like, I, to be perfectly honest, that moment probably, I, I would say most of the motivation behind it is just... Let's see Uhura in her underwear, you know. That's not her only defining character. Exactly, yes. She does other things later on. She still does more things 
in this one. She has other stuff to her character besides her body. Also, in that scene, they at least attempt to give it context. Yeah. Where she's changing and Kirk is hiding under the bed or whatever. Yeah. It's not just, here, let's just have a random scene where this lady strips for no reason. Yeah. So I, I do think that that makes a difference. It's still objectifying her, but they're at least trying to fit it into the plot of the film. Yeah, it wasn't such a blatant disregard for her character, essentially. If we, if this Marcus char- Dr. Marcus character is really going to be someone important, well, that was kind of a lackluster introduction, wasn't it? Right. Oh, she's so-and-so's daughter, and we're going to see her in her undies. There is nothing about her that isn't in a relationship to another man. Right. She's defined by the men in her life and the audi- and the, 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 the men what kind of a in the audience and the men on screen looking at her. Yeah. What kind of a character is that? Yeah. So all the guys have some other defining characteristic rather than the relationship they have with each other. When we talk about Kirk, we don't talk about he's just fighting with Spock. We talk about he, right. he's a womanizer. We talk about he's a hothead. You know, he thinks he's big stuff. Other things. Also – when I think of Kirk, my first thought is not, oh, he was shirtless and he had a threesome. Yeah. Ask how many people like actually remember that scene. It's only right now that it's being talked about in regard, I think, to the Alice Eve's character and being pointed at as the defense of, oh, yeah, well, we also saw, you right. know, chest. Right. And, and, and do, do you want to talk about that a little bit? I mean, why the fact that men are also quote-unquote objectified really doesn't justify women being objectified on screen like it's not equal it's totally not equal because we have a the historical context behind it where men just don't really have as much exploitation in those terms first of all i would hesitate to call what we see in star trek into darkness as objectification. Yeah. Uh, because, again, there is at least a little bit of context for these characters to be shirtless. Yeah, well, in his, yeah. Not for hers. That's the difference. Right. Hers was really just trailer bait. But even even if there was no context, even if there was just, like... He likes to walk, walk around shirtless now. Look, even if there was a completely random scene of Chris Pine doing a strip tease in the middle of the movie to no one in particular except the audience, (laughs) I would still argue it is not as offensive as that two-second shot of Alice Eve. Well, do tell. Just because, sure, I would argue it is possible to objectify men, and you can point at, I don't know, underwear models (laughs) and, you know, cases in which men are objectified as lumps of flesh. Yeah. But it doesn't matter Because we live in a patriarchal society Mm -hmm. where institutionally, culturally, men are in control, we have the power. It does not matter Mm -hmm. if men are objectified. Mm -hmm. Typically, we get to control when we're objectified. Yeah. Women do not have that luxury. I was going to say, even if it was a reverse thing where it was women, a bunch of women in the movie theater objectifying men, say in the case of Magic Mike... Right. Well, at the end of the day, it's still Magic Mike is still his own boss or, you know, it's still a male f- director behind it. They're entrepreneurs. They're yeah. this is their career choice. Yeah. Men don't have to worry about being objectified on a daily basis all the time. Yeah. Women do. And for them, objectification has very real consequences yep. from everything 
from harassment to sexual assault. Yeah. So it's not equal. Mm-hmm. Showing Chris Pine shirtless does not make it okay to show Alice Eve shirtless because the power dynamics are not the same. Yep, well said. Anything to add, oh feminist friend? <laughs> I mean, we've done a pretty good takedown of this, I think. Okay, okay. I think. So would, so would you agree that a five-minute striptease by Chris Pine wouldn't make up for that two-second shot of Alice Eve? Not that into Chris Pine, so no. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Just kidding. That's not a real answer. What if it was Cumberbatch? Um, <laughs> it's not fair. <laughs> also, I think it is important to keep in mind the demographics of the audience yes. that are going to see Star Trek. Mm-hmm. Like, there are not a lot of women, as far as I'm aware, that are going to go see Star Trek into darkness. If, if there was, maybe I could s- see more justification for this argument that Kirk and Cumberbatch are both being objectified equal as well but the audience is heavily male Mm -hmm. and like i said that shot of alice eve was used in the trailer to try to sell a male audience on the film yeah as far as i remember i could be wrong but i do not recall that little shot of kirk shirtless being put in the trailers and the marketing yeah i don't think they could have shown him coming out of the threesome or whatever for the what is it pg-13 market i don't know or they could have just shown the little shot of Khan showering, even though it's not in the final film. They could have. But I think there's also something to be said about the fact that those images are still used and reused and reaffirmed and still recycled in the cultural lexicon. And it just it validates that point of view that women can be seen in such a light. So I think that's also, especially in pop culture, when it's something so quote-unquote mainstream and it's supposed to appeal to a wide audience, it you know, it does add to that validation of this is how women are treated and normalizes right. that treatment. So that's why that's why there's a lot of feminists out there that are not happy that J.J. Abrams went ahead and did that. Right. And I agree with them. I think they should be unhappy. And or David Lindenlorf, whatever his name is. Lindelof. Lindelof. And Lindelof, to be fair, he did come out and apologize and say, yes, it was completely gratuitous. Mm-hmm. To his credit, he, he did apologize. But the fact that... Other films have objectified women. The fact that the 2009 film arguably objectified Uhura, the fact that you could point to certain episodes of the original series Mm -hmm. and say, oh, look how there were women in skimpy outfits being objectified. That does not change the fact that this is objectification and this is... And you're still doing it. Offensive, yeah. I mean, the original (laughs) series was 50 years ago, and for its time it was incredibly progressive. You'd think... By now, we would have evolved even farther. Nope, we're regressing. Because there's also, along with the whole sexism card, people are playing the racism card because Khan is a British man now, apparently. Yes. In this parallel. He is not Ricardo Montalban. (laughs) Yes. In the original Wrath of Khan, Khan is... I want to say he's an Indian. Yes, he is. Character, he's of Indian descent, yep. and he was played by a Mexican actor. Mm-hmm. But in this film, nope, they just got a, a white guy. Because fifty years from the year nineteen sixty, which was still just barely a few years post Jim Crow laws, the best that we could do in terms of putting 
casting a person of color in order for a role described originally written as uh, an Indian Sikh is a white dude. Right. Yep. To be fair, I'm not sure if they I have not seen the original episode mm-hmm. of the original series when Khan is introduced. I'm not sure if they revealed in that episode what his ethnicity was or if that came later or if he was just through like super novels and stuff sort of thing. Right. An amalgamation of all different races or whatnot. Right. I mean, the important thing is that he was a person of color. Yeah. And this one blogger also pointed out that it was really important that, A, he was a person of color who had superpowers, who was super intelligent, who had yes. human, who, superhuman abilities. Yes. I mean, he, yes, he was super savage and scary, well, but yeah, yeah. He, was a, he was a smart guy. <laughs> he wasn't just a, you know, what I'm... You know what I'm saying? Like a brute. Yeah, and he, he was a very compelling vi- character. I mean, don't get me wrong. I think Cumberbatch does a great job in this film, especially with the script yeah. and the lack of development that he's given. With that said, I do find it disconcerting that they could not have found a person of color to play the villain. And that, to me, you're right, does indicate that perhaps we have regressed a little bit as a culture, if it's becoming harder and harder for studios to feel comfortable casting people of color in major roles. Mm-hmm. I mean, is there any reason, say, Dev Patel couldn't play a, a young con? I was just joking about it because he needs some redemption points after Avatar Last Time Bender. <laughs> <laughs> So, yeah, give he should have had a shot at that. I love Dev Patel. He's a great actor. He seems like a nice guy. I have no doubt. I he could do a he could do a villain. I think if you if you gave well, him the he material. did for Last Airbender. He was the only person of color in a cast that was supposed to be Asian, and then he was a bad guy. <laughs> I have not seen Last Airbender. Thankfully, I haven't had to suffer through that. Yeah, but yeah, why couldn't he have been? young cod you know i i mean i i just it, it it really is disappointing yeah when you think about the institutional forces and ideas that seep into these mainstream yeah institutional isms anyways back to star trek into darkness we've we've talked a lot but we've still got some stuff to cover yeah we cannot end the show without talking about the political stuff and the political subtext oh Okay. Throw my bucket of popcorn on that. Jeez, <laughs> that made me mad. I'm of I'm of two minds on this. Nope, I'm one mind. <laughs> Kurtzman, Orsi, and Lindelof did say years b- before the film came out, while it was in development, that they were going to be drawing on the war on terror and exploring some of those themes and making the movie kind of allegorical. And I think that's fine. I think that is in keeping with the spirit of the original Star Trek series, which often explored real-life issues in a fantastical setting. Mm-hmm. Save the whales. Yes, and I'll, and I'll be perfectly honest, for as much as the War on Terror has seeped into popular culture, I do not think the conversation is over, and I do think that there are still interesting artistic ways to explore that topic and, and to, to inspire better conversation about the war on terror. Mm-hmm. So I'm fine with it in theory. It just was pulled off really messily. Yeah, clumsy. They fumbled that. Like you said, you weren't happy with it at all? 
the end credit where they dedicated to the oh man first was it was like the first responders of nine eleven like they actually well well no I think they used I think they used the phrase nine eleven veterans yeah and I I'm not sure I can't I, remember they, I think it's possible that they're not just referring to the first responders on nine eleven I think it's possible they're also referring to veterans of the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. Yeah. That were largely inspired by 9-11, mm-hmm. which I totally got from the film that that's what it was about. I really didn't need that dedication at the end. Yeah, <laughs> it kind of just like it was a blunt force object like hitting me. <laughs> yes, it was so obnoxious. Blunt force trauma. Thanks, man. You know what it reminded me of? It reminded me of that stupid comedy, The Other Guys. Did you see that no, movie? No, I didn't. You're okay. on your own there. The, like, The Other Guys is not a great movie, and it thinks it is exploring mm-hmm. interesting ideas about the economy and the 1% versus the 99% uh, when it's actually not. Mm. And so suddenly, during the end credits, all of these statistics come up about, like, the wealth gap and economic inequality. Wait, The Other Guys? Yes, the Will Ferrell, Will Mark Ferrell Wahlberg Mar- comedy. <laughs> yes, and it is just like so random and ob- obnoxious. Like even if you agree with the politics mm-hmm. of the, of these filmmakers, which and these writers, which to a certain extent I do. Yeah, they tend to be a little liberal, so <laughs> it's just really obnoxious. I agree. Okay, but but let's let's talk out this political allegory here. I think it's safe to say that Khan is basically the Osama bin Laden figure in this story. Yeah, he is the one you know performing terrorist acts, and which is blowing people is, up. Is that why it would have been offensive? It was a person of color. I don't know. I I, I don't think so. I don't know. Okay. Yeah, he's the Bin Laden figure, and the ultimate message of the film, if you're if you're going to read this as an, as allegory, the the main message that I took away from the movie is we should not have assassinated Bin Laden. We should have tried to capture him and bring him in alive, and you know, given him some sort of trial. We should not and put him to cryo sleep. Sure, put him to cryo sleep. Yes. We'll check back <laughs> in 300 years and see how he's aged. Put him in Guantanamo, which is effectively the modern equivalent of cryo sleep, where no one hears from you. Wait, again. how many people are there in Guantanamo? Someone should check and make sure it's more more than 70. More than 72. I think it's like 166. I want to say. Is it 72 times? No, it would be a little bit more. I was going to say 72, 74 times two. <laughs> would have been. Yeah. Guys, <laughs> too obvious. I I think that's what the filmmakers are trying to say. And personally, I have no problem with that. I honestly think when it comes to the killing of Osama bin Laden, that's a conversation that we should be having, which I don't think we are having. Mm. Um, And that's a debate that that needs to happen. But really, we had to drag out Khan for that? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm okay with that, honestly, because... Let's be honest, regardless of your feelings on movie Zero Dark Thirty, I know you loved it, Monica. Yes. But that that movie did not really deal into the quote-unquote issues Mm. or the controversy surrounding what it depicted. Mm -hmm. So I'm fine with if, if blockbuster movies want to explore that. 
because um, I think I'm just happy it's being explored, <laughs> honestly. So I, I was okay with that. Honestly, I'm 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 with you when it comes to the uh, the 72 team members in Cryo Sleep. That's where the allegory really just sort of breaks down for me. Well, I was gonna say, you know, there's there's sometimes. There's a part of me that just doesn't want my politics to go into my entertainment and my entertainment to stay out of politics. I'm fine with it. Like I'm cool with it. You know, Calm down, Bono. I got you. I understand you really like this activism stuff, but would you please get off my television set and yelling at me? That sort of thing. And so when, I don't know, I, I know I like when my summer blockbuster has something to say, but it Maybe it has to say it well <laughs> in right. order for me to excuse it and be like, oh, man, that was deep. Otherwise, I just feel like I, it was more of a message that tried to hit me over the head multiple times. And I'm like, I got it. Thanks. Leave me alone. I'm with you there. It's like I... the kids at the clipboard. So I want you to sign, sign, sign. And do you have a moment for gay rights? Oh, please. Of course. <laughs> I, I, I'm with you there. I, I think the main problem with Star Trek Into Darkness isn't that the political subtext it's the, is there. It's that it's very messy. And I was following the allegory you know, pretty clearly up until the point when they get to Kronos. Mm-hmm. Like, Kirk is sent to go take out Khan, a.k.a. John Harrison, with these new experimental missiles and basically just sit on the edge of Klingon space and kill him. Drone strike. Yeah, I, I mean, that's a very clear allegory for modern-day drone strikes. I'm with the movie up until that point, mm-hmm. and then it just sort of goes everywhere, again, off the rails once Khan shows up and starts giving his big speech and revealing all of his backstory and what's up with his crew members, and the missiles are actually people. So we are the WMDs. Yes, I guess. Well, well, we are the weapons inside of us. Well, Slate actually ran a really interesting article, mm-hmm. sort of breaking down how the allegory is working in the, in the film, or not working, and or not working. But but they argued that the fact that these missiles are filled with humans, it is a it, it's sort of referencing the fact that often innocent civilians are killed in these drone strikes. I see. And that that was they were supposed to represent, which I think is a fair argument. Well, I was going to say, it's the double cost of life on both sides. Right, right. And it was a really interesting article. I'll probably link to it in the show notes. Um, So maybe that's what the writers were going for. The problem is, I could not follow the plot well enough to really process that. You really wanted Abrams to come down and hold your hand at this point. Well, okay. Can you explain to me what is up with these missiles full of people? Like, Khan says, okay, after the destruction of Vulcan, a.k.a. 9-11, mm-hmm. the Federation militarized and started working on these super weapons to basically incite a war. I mean, come on. We get mm-hmm. it. You're talking about Iraq. But Khan is forced by Marcus to make these weapons and... And so to save his team, he smuggles them into these torpedoes. And I was like, wait, wait, wait. Can you back up what was the plan there? Like, were you going to smuggle them into these experimental torpedoes and then somehow put the torpedoes on other ships? Like, that wouldn't be noticed? Hey, why are you putting these experimental torpedoes on this ship and trying to 
take them away. I mean, uh, what was the plan? And also, why would you put your valued teammates in weapons that are designed to blow up? <laughs> yeah, I wasn't quite sure if that was the best means. Like, cargo ships don't exist anymore? No? Right. I mean, I can understand why when he discovered what Khan was doing, Admiral Marcus would hold on to those torpedoes and eventually try to use them with Kirk to destroy mm -hmm. Khan, because that basically just gets rid of all the evidence and all the superhumans and all of his problems in one fell swoop. Mm -hmm. But I did not understand the logic of how they got into the torpedoes in the first I think place. Khan was the only one that was defrosted. Yes. So like they were all they were all in cryo sleep and then Marcus was the one who woke him up. Yes. Yes. And then Khan tr put them into torpedoes to quote unquote smuggle them out. Yeah, he's not very good. Yeah, it, it just it just seemed to me like the writers were really grasping at straws here. Well, what could fit a human being? How did they get onto the torpedoes? Uh, it was just a, just put that he wanted to smuggle them out. It doesn't really matter that that doesn't make a whole lot of sense, and there's no real reason for him to smuggle them out through torpedoes. Just it's it. The audience will buy it. Just use the word smuggle. It'll be okay. <laughs> no. Yeah, I feel like if the, again, if the script was better, maybe that would have been fine and made total sense to me. But it was just another one of those things where I was just kind of scratching my head, going, "Wait, wait, wait, stop, back up." Can you elaborate on that a little bit? Mm -hmm. And and then, of course, at the end of the film, San Francisco is demolished. <laughs> a large portion of San Francisco is demolished. So I'm trying to remember, did cities getting – were cities destroyed at such a frequent pace as they are nowadays? Or is this just a post-9-11 thing? I don't think thing? so. I think, I think, honestly, this is just a post-9-11 thing. It's like it's going to just play on our nation's psyche yes. for now until people get bored of it. Yes, and honestly, I think that is, to a certain extent, the role of film and the role of art is to sort of work out culturally our trauma when things like this happen. But I agree with you, it has been happening a lot. It's also, so there's one thing of working through trauma, there's another thing of reliving the trauma and seeing that over and over and over. I think there's, a, there's an issue of are we using this imagery and these plot elements because we want to make a point or we want to try to help get people talking and, and just dealing with this issue? Or are we just using it because it's a provocative image and it'll help us sell the film and make money? And are we just going to profit off of it? Mm -hmm. I think that's the question that Hollywood needs to be asking. But yeah, San Francisco is demolished. We see skyscrapers toppling down and the Enterprise runs into Alcatraz and other major landmarks in San Francisco. Yeah. So the, my question to you, Monica, would be, did you feel like the film was trying to argue that, you know, in trying to incite another war and in trying to... to, to militarize and do all these things we ultimately the ultimately what happened is it just led to another 9-11 style event and the destruction of a city and the deaths of thousands of more innocent people well when i was first working out the allegory i was thinking that we create our own terrorists because john harris is it john harrison 
Khan, aka Khan. Um, he's technically one of the fleets, Starfleet. Well, that's part of his cover identity. But he was developed by Starfleet, correct? He's a superhuman, yes. genetically engineered from them. I don't know if I don't. Did Starfleet were they responsible for his for his development? Did they create him? I I'm not sure. Again, because they don't really give much detail into his backstory. I don't know. Yeah, I got that from, well, I got that impression, if you will, from that exposition okay. dump when he was just talking all, 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 all on. So, and even not, then, I mean, he was in their systems or so, as John Harrison. Okay, well, that idea of we create our own terrorists, that, that, that's interesting because Bob Orsi, one of the writers of the film, is considering how I think... It's sort of remarkable to me that Bob Orsi worked on this movie because the, I I would argue that the politics of this film are on the left, mm-hmm. and Bob Orsi is like very far to the right. Yeah, I like heard he that. is very much like a nine eleven truther. He's one of these guys that's he's sort of a conspiracy theorist. If you look at his Twitter account, he's always like tweeting Alex Jones and talking about like false flags, like uh oh, the Boston bombing, look for the government. They were probably involved. Like he's he's yeah. kind of a wingnut. I'm wondering if maybe at some point during the script development process that was something that w- that at one point was in the movie where ultimately it was going to turn out that the Federation was responsible for the bombings, not Khan. The Federation was somehow more involved in these acts of terror. I don't know. Yeah. But it's interesting that you, you bring up that idea that Khan was technically a member of Starfleet. I mean, it stuck out. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, I'm trying to piece together what they're giving me, sloppy seconds. So. Right. <laughs> yeah, I, uh, yeah, I agree. It's not as fun. You really need to go watch Wrath of Khan. I really want to. Yeah, now I want to go back and rewatch it. I kind of, it's on I, Netflix. I've been, I've been slowly trying to work my way through the original series. I want to <laughs> hurry up and finish that and and go on to the movies, rewatch the original movies. Yeah, pretty fair. Okay, last thing I want to talk about. It's something other people have brought up, so I don't want to spend too much time on it. And that is uh, the opening scene of the film and what basically kicks off a lot of the plot here mm-hmm. is when the Enterprise is exploring this uh, other planet. They can't reveal themselves to the natives. Uh, they're trying to stop a volcano from exploding and wiping out all life. Mm-hmm. And they keep bringing up this thing, the, the Prime Directive. Yeah. And again, I'm not... I, I'm somewhat familiar with Star Trek, but I'm not a huge Star Trek nut. Mm-hmm. For some reason, I had completely forgotten <laughs> this idea of the Prime Directive, which I, I know is a major component of Trek lore, mm-hmm. which is like the one unbreakable rule of the Federation above all others is you do not reveal yourselves to species that do not have warp capability and they're not technologically advanced 
Well, I'm so glad you filled me in there. Okay. Well, I, I, see, I was wondering if you were confused because I was a little bit confused. I was like, the Prime Directive. Wait, what's that? I was starting to think it was like, oh, they had a mission. They had a mission. So it's the Prime Directive. It's the main mission. JK, LOL. <laughs> the, the, the Prime Directive is like this Federation-wide policy, from my understanding, which is basically you do not interfere with other species and other races if they are not ready to be interfered with. And I believe the the cutoff point is if when they developed warp technology. Until that point, you know, they're just not culturally and psychologically ready to handle the reveal that, oh my god, there are all these other aliens and, you know, systems and politics and, and everything out there in the universe. Mm-hmm. So that's basically the what's going on in, in that opening scene and why they don't want the Enterprise to reveal itself. But the thing that I kept wondering was, wait, wait, wait. I'm not sure if this is the case. I think it is based on what I've read since seeing the film. But I'm pretty sure, you know, just trying to stop the volcano in itself is a violation of the Prime Directive. And doesn't Pike in the briefing afterwards kind of say as much? Like you shouldn't even have been there been, been there to try to stop the volcano? <laughs> Like if yeah, if they're all gonna if they're gonna die, fine. You let them die. You let life in the universe follow its natural course. Mm-hmm. So I mean, w- were you confused at all by that scene, or? Well, I just let you know that I had no idea what the hell a prime directive was. My ner- my nerd cred is going to be in question now. Do you hear? <laughs> I thought it was a fairly well done scene, and I thought it was pretty enjoyable. Mm-hmm. But I was sort of wondering, like, wait, Spock gets Kirk in trouble for disobeying the prime directive, but wasn't Spock himself disobeying the prime directive by trying to stop the volcano? Uh, that's not logical. Mr. Vulcan. So, I mean, that's, they're essentially not on any missions until, like, they're sent on one for this criminal and it's a special case or whatnot. It's really right. just exploring the universe, having fun, travel the stars, visit Endor. It doesn't matter if we do things that pretty much everyone else in the universe has said, no, 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 you don't do that. <laughs> Yeah. That is a bad idea. You don't mess with other worlds that aren't ready. I feel like this happened a lot of times during the series. Am I wrong? They, um, what do you mean? When they're... That they would visit, like, I guess, quote-unquote, primitive cultures or so. I th- believe that is different. Um, okay. Because they're exploring places that no one has been to before. Mm. So I've heard... I got the impression that in Star Trek Into Darkness, that planet was one that the Federation was aware of, and they were perfectly aware that these beings were there and just weren't evolved enough yet to to be made aware of their presence. I could be wrong. If there are any Trek fans listening, you can email and let me know. But I believe that if you're exploring, it's okay to to try and interact with new beings that you encounter or at the very least try to like do some research yeah. you know like gather minerals and send a team down to the planet just to kind of look around and see if it's inhabited if you count if you encounter any life forms try to determine how developed they are etc and also the enterprise stays in orbit mhm 
I believe during no, it was all, under the ocean. Remember? Well, yeah, here it was under the ocean, but I believe like in the original series and all throughout Star Trek, whenever the uh, Enterprise is exploring an- another planet. The Enterprise basically stays in space where no one can see it, mm-hmm. and they just beam a team down to see what's going on. So I, I think the idea is you don't want undeveloped cultures you know, seeing the Enterprise, seeing all of this technology. Yes. But I, I could be wrong, but that's Spoilers. what I think. <laughs> that's what I think is happening. <laughs> well, because you, then you see at the end of that sequence, they start drawing the Enterprise on the ground and worshipping it. Right, which is what you do not want to happen. <laughs> yeah, you don't want to become God. It's a lot of responsibility. Well, I, w- I was just thinking, I'm wondering, okay, maybe one day those aliens will develop warp technology, and then they'll get to space and quote-unquote meet God. Yeah. Which is uh, actually the plot of one of the Star Trek films. Oh, good. <laughs> it, is, it is a Star Trek, I think it's five at one point, they they visit a planet and they meet this being who's basically who claims to be omnipotent and is basically God. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, that opening scene was enjoyable, but I'm not sure quite how much sense it makes, especially in the grand scheme of things. I mean, they didn't exactly explain anything. They're just and we're running right right now. Action adventure. Well, that's kind of how I felt about the film as a whole. It's like you could tell the focus was on action and set pieces and trying to be an, you know, a fun, adrenaline-filled, uh, enjoyable experience for the audience mm-hmm. at the expense of, at times, a coherent script and certain ideas that are pretty embedded in, in the Trek mythology. Mm-hmm. So I feel like I, I, I've read pieces by a lot of fans who are much more familiar with Star Trek than I am that were sort of baffled by a lot of the decisions in this movie that they argue kind of betray the spirit of of the original series and sort of just focus all on the action. Hey guys, guess who's got uh, Star Wars coming up? Well, see, I feel like that approach is probably more in keeping with Star Wars than Star Trek. Honestly. This is true. And J.J. Abrams has admitted that he, growing up, was not a really big fan of Star Trek, and he really was much more of a Star Wars guy. Which feels really sad, you know. I think it was also Tim Burton. He went on the record as saying he never read comic books as a kid and didn't like it, didn't really know about Batman when he took on the directing role of Batman back right. in 89. And that. You know, some people really resented him for that. Right. And I mean, sometimes that can work. I've read that the original, I think, writer or producer of The Wrath of Khan wasn't Mm. a big Star Trek fan before working on Wrath of Khan. And now that's considered to be one of the best films in the series. Mm -hmm. So I think sometimes it can work out. But yeah, I have heard a lot of people kind of making snarky remarks like, oh, I hope for Star Trek 3 they actually hire a director who likes Star Trek. Hmm. You know, sometimes it helps to also be one of the fans. Um, I love pointing to Stephen Moffat, who's the head writer now for the Doctor Who series and for Sherlock, and he's a big geek in terms of the mythology of Doctor Who and loves putting in little fan moments throughout the series, especially the episodes that he writes. You can almost tell immediately. 
he's got a very distinct style and a lot of that also does with the in references that he has throughout right but I guess the last part that I do want to mention was, did you think that the movie at all at any point was like too dark or murky in terms of look? I have had that problem with a lot of films this summer, <laughs> so far as you know. I, I thought... Yeah, you might want to check another theater or something. Yeah, I well, okay. I thought... Iron Man 3, the night scenes. I, I, I don't necessarily think it's the projection. I think it is the fact that a lot of the time it is set at night, so it's naturally going to be darker. And if you have a lot of stuff going on and you've got a lot of cutting that, as we've said, a lot of action directors nowadays don't know how to edit action. You mean like Abrams? I was not thrilled with the action scenes of Abrams. It's a lot of shaky cam. Right. It's a lot of, what the hell? Who just punched who? I just saw a fist flying somewhere. I don't right. know who it belongs to. The fake zooms of Doom, which is my least favorite new toy of his. Um, <laughs> it was actually the projectionist of uh, the theater that I was watching it at. We had a conversation, and he's like, you know, he stole that from Joss Whedon, right? He used that all throughout the Firefly uh, season. That was also used a lot in uh, Battlestar Galactica. Okay. But, but but yeah, when you've got a lot of shaky cam, when you've got a lot of cutting, when there's just a lot of A lot of movement within movement. A lot of movement, a lot of people, a lot of characters to follow. You know, it's, it's already going to be hard to keep track of everything going on. And setting it at night just makes it worse. I don't really have a problem with the night thing. I didn't think it was too ugly at least when i saw it but my friend next to me kept saying it was also dark and murky so maybe i'm I, just i thought that the action scenes in star trek into darkness looked overall pretty great mm -hmm. and as from what i remember i just think it was shot very s sloppy right from what i remember with the exception of the scene where they're going from airlock to airlock which i actually liked mm -hmm. I, I don't think very many scenes with actual characters engaging in action take place in darkness. Yes, a lot of the ship-to-ship -ship combat, I mean, that's in space, so yeah, there's going to be darkness there. But overall, I thought that the image was fine, but I agree with you. I thought that the action was shot and edited in a much more confusing way than the 2009 film. I think mm -hmm. I think it's much easier to, uh, to to follow and understand the choreography of the action scenes in the 2009 film than it is to follow Lens the action flares in this movie. notwithstanding. Yeah, again, why? Uh, yeah, why? Another reason not to use lens flares. It makes things harder to follow. Yeah. <laughs> why does Spock always have a halo behind him? Is he an angel now? <laughs> yeah, I was reading something. I can't remember where it was, but they, they pointed out that. Um, I think it was some some article about the Alice Eve controversy, and they pointed out that like in one of her like big scenes where she actually gets to talk and she's like giving, I think she's talking to her father or something, and she's having her big emotional moment. Mm -hmm. uh, there's like a lens flare pretty much covering up her face. <laughs> oh, oh no! <laughs> Sorry, Alice Eve, you don't really get your close up. <laughs> She just can't get a break in this film. Yeah. Oh, man. Oh, man. They better do, like, something really nice to her. Like, actually give her a character next movie. <laughs> oh, man. There's a part of me that just hopes they write her out <laughs> after Aww. how they destroyed her in this movie. 
<laughs> She's supposed to really be the mother of Kirk's child. I'm mean, again parallel universe, so God knows what happens next. But right, right. The, the, there's a lot of stuff to nitpick in this movie, and it it it's it's sort of it's not small things in mm-hmm. my opinion. There there are a lot of fairly big problems in this movie that did limit my enjoyment of it, especially in the second half. It's enough to take the Enterprise back to the shop and say, fix it. Yeah. I'm not going up in space with that. It's very disappointing, especially considering how the 2009 film did leave them with supposedly the freedom to do whatever they want. Yeah. You know, I really wish that they had had just really ran with that idea. I mean, they destroyed an entire planet yeah. In the 2009 film, like, there's so many compelling things you could explore about that. And and the effect that that has had, not just on Spock, but just on Vulcans in general and politics. And I, I honestly think they the right thing to do would have been to make that the focus of the film. And also to just have more guts in developing the characters and not be so afraid of upsetting fans. Because oddly enough, it seems like in trying to repeat things that fans like, they've ended up upsetting a lot of fans who mm-hmm. <laughs> are kind of like, well, we already saw this in Wrath of Khan. You don't, you don't need to do it again. <laughs> I know how this ends. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Except you don't because Kirk doesn't actually die. Uh... All right. Well, I think that'll wrap it up for this episode on Star Trek Into Darkness. It's time for our final segment of the show reboot this we invented this part of the show because it seems like everything nowadays is becoming a franchise and if hollywood feels like they can make money off of it they will <laughs> so the idea of reboot this is is that we pitch a prequel a sequel or a remake to the film we just discussed anything that could potentially extend the life of this series and allow hollywood to milk it for all it's worth so, Monica, Star Trek Into Darkness. If you had to pitch a prequel, sequel, or a remake to this movie, what would it be? I feel like I should watch the original one first so I know how the third one's going to go. Uh, the third one is called The Search for Spock. They're on a planet trying to, from what very little I remember, trying to find a way to resurrect him. And there's this, yeah. Okay, so maybe the fourth one. The fourth one is the one where they go back in time to say and save the whales. I'm not <gasps> kidding. That is the actual plot. That's perfectly fine. You know what? We're gonna save the whales. We're gonna save the whales, man. Is that what you want to see for Star Trek Three? Well, apparently, apparently now Star Trek Two in this series is Star Trek Two and Three because we already re- resurrected Kirk. So the next thing to do is to res- is to save the whales. Damn it! <laughs> but so then, you, so you're saying you just want to repeat Star Trek's greatest hits? I haven't seen them. <laughs> <laughs> save the whales. <laughs> <laughs> hey, that was directed by Leonard Nimoy. All right, no hate. Maybe they could stop Khan from killing all the whales. <laughs> that can be the plot. Terrible. <laughs> Instead of saving whales, they save seals. <laughs> well, I mean, let's not forget, at the end of Star Trek Into Darkness, Khan is still alive. Yeah. They just, you know, they put him in the same storage facility that Indiana Jones' Crystal Skull goes into. Yes. And for some reason, they haven't. They, there's no scene of them celebrating. Oh my God! We figured out how to cure every disease, including death. We're all immortal now. Nope. It's just gonna put it away in a freezer. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully, there's not an expiration date on that. 
Oh man, that's another thing to nitpick. Like if 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 Khan was genetically engineered, then theoretically we have engineered a way to be immortal. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, cryo sleep. <laughs> well, other than cryo sleep, the, the blood, whatever's in his blood. Yeah. Yet for some reason, people in the Star Trek universe still seem to die of natural causes. I don't. I don't. Understand. The universe would have wanted that way. <laughs> Okay, so your your version would have them saving seals. <laughs> Come on, it'd be so cute. <laughs> it would be cute. It would be adorable. <laughs> That's how you would get the girls and the <laughs> Wait, I know how to get the entire internet on board with this. Save the cheeseburger cats. <laughs> the cheeseburger cats. <laughs> Just have a shit ton of memes, and that's what the Star Trek crew has to say. I can has super blood? <laughs> You're welcome. Oh, man. Just coming to check right now, Abrams. <laughs> okay, well, I actually took a few minutes and came up with a plot for Star Trek 3 that I think would actually work. Nerd. This is semi-serious. I'm, I'm not even joking with this, okay? I took the time. This is one of the few cinema fixes where I'm, I'm not coming up with, like, a jokey, funny pitch. Please tell me you're going to sing again. I'm not going to sing. Well, I, I could. I maybe. could. Uh, <laughs> maybe. I haven't decided yet. Play us um, off, keyboard cat. <laughs> <laughs> okay. The, this is actually a serious pitch that I think has some good ideas in it. But I want you to tell me what you think, Monica. It could be really stupid. Okay. But here's what I think. The only funny thing about it is the title, which I, I've decided to call it Star Trek Into Sadness. I think it's too close to the darkness, but that's okay. <laughs> It'd be easily confused in the red box. Well, here's what I think should happen after the events of Star Trek Into Darkness. Okay. I think, you know, at the end of Star Trek Into Darkness, they're supposedly about to go on their five-year mission to explore the galaxy. Here's what I have. It sounds okay, like the, Mormons, but anyway. It, <laughs> it should start off, the Enterprise crew is called back to Earth after some of Khan's 72 team members who have now been woken up for research purposes by the Federation. They are awake, but some of them go rogue and wake up Khan. Okay. Return of the Khan? Return, yes. Star Trek Three: Return of Khan. You're welcome. <laughs> Continue. This would allow the writers to keep dealing with these themes of terrorism and response because basically these uh, the, the 72 crew members and Khan, they would pretty much become symbols of Al-Qaeda or, or Muslims in general. Some of these superhumans would want to assimilate and be nice and not piss off the government. Others of them would be extremists and want to follow Khan. And they would build a device, a weapon, that when detonated, creates a small black hole capable of a ton of destruction. So basically, a WMD. I like the black hole uh, threat. It's, yes. It's a nice, good, familiar sci-fi trope. Yes, and it would allow Hollywood studios to, to keep making these scenes of mass destruction. And they would technically have to save the whales. Yes, they would have to save the <laughs> whales. If you detonated one of these things over the ocean, who knows what could happen. Okay. Oh. But, so yeah, the Enterprise is called back to deal with this threat. Uh, at some point, Sulu would lose an eye in a sword fight just because this would give him an excuse to wear an eye patch and look badass. And because that is one attribute of his character that we've seen. 
He he loves to fence. He is a sword fighter, so there'd be an awesome sword fight in there. Mm-hmm. Uh, at some point, Scotty and Uhura would both be killed, and there's no bringing them back, okay? It's time Star Trek, the, the reboot, grew some balls, killed off some characters. Yeah, but why pick on the only girl? Uh, fine. Maybe not Uhura. Some, someone else. Dr. Off. Marcus. Doctor, yes, okay, Doctor Marcus. Yes, okay, I like this. Kill off Doctor Marcus after she has given birth to Kirk's son. Okay, so the mother of his child is now dead, and he is a single dad. Or really go for the grief and kill her off while she's pregnant. Okay. (gasps) Oh no, you're gonna repeat the awful Star Wars three thing. (laughs) <laughs> sure, if J.J. Abrams loves Star Wars, so, yeah. Yeah, and it's going to take place on a molten lava volcanic thing. Yeah, I, I was going to say kill off Uhura because that'll be dramatic for Spock, but you're right. We should kill off Scotty and Marcus after she's pregnant with Kirk's child. Yeah, Kirk needs to, needs a chance to lose his marbles, so yes. let's yes. go. So he can, so it can be his turn to yell, "Con!" <laughs> yes, and after all these action scenes and all the stuff is ha- that's happening, okay, one of the superhumans is going to be a woman that Khan loves. Okay, he's actually going to have a heart, and he's going to have a love interest. Doesn't he have one in the movie? And the- I can't remember. Probably. Okay, I think he does. Or I think he made him because I read about it. I had to read about this. Um, he mentions that in the struggle to survive or whatever, he lost his wife. Yes, and that's why he was angry at Kirk. You're right. Yeah. So, yeah. So, how things will ultimately turn out is Khan will finally agree to turn himself in along with his black hole device in exchange for the life of the woman he loves. Okay? So, the message here is that diplomacy is good. We shouldn't assassinate people. So, the writers of the film can keep dealing with those political themes. But is she... Is Khan's wife going to be, like, a hostage situation? Yeah, yeah, it could be some sort of hostage situation. Like, it could be some sort of situation where Kirk and the crew of the Enterprise, they capture her, and they're basically like, okay, Khan, we have to end this, or we we will agree to drop the charges and forego the death penalty on the woman you love if you turn yourself in along with your black hole device. Okay? So Khan... Will in a moment of raw humanity, in a moving scene, will agree to do it. It'll look like everyone's happy. Diplomacy is, has won out. Khan is basically agreeing to go back into cryo sleep and float in space for hundreds of more years. Mm-hmm. However, Kirk is going to be so angry about the death of Carol Marcus and his unborn child. This is like getting to be fan fiction, yo. <laughs> this is long. Well, I mean, the, let's be honest. These are long movies, okay? Star Trek Into Darkness <laughs> went through a lot of acts, okay? Uh, he's going to be – it's going to look like everything's okay, but then Kirk's going to be so angry that he's going to use the black hole device to set off several black holes that kill Khan in his cryotube as he's floating off in space and also cause a lot of destruction – to innocent people and destroy and almost destroy the federation okay he's so angry that he's willing to kill innocent people in order to get caught as a result he's stripped of his rank as captain but he flees the scene before he can be arrested and he basically exiles himself to the far side of the galaxy to contemplate what he's done and to deal with his grief over losing 
Marcus and his unborn child. Okay, so he's now <laughs> he's now exiled. He's out of the picture. Does he paint pictures of dogs. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so and and the rest of the crew then is sent back on their exploratory mission uncertain as to what the future may hold you don't know will kirk ever come out of exile and return will he be gone forever it's unknown the 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 point is that there are some actual major stuff has happened the fate of these characters has been completely altered and now star trek's four through ten or whatever can actually follow what's left of the crew doing some actual exploratory stuff out in the galaxy. You don't have to deal with Khan or these themes of terrorism anymore. You can go back to the exploring. (laughs) So what do you, what do you think? That was, it was epic. It's confusing, bro. (laughs) Confusing. Yeah. Let's talk about plot dump. Okay. Well, yeah, that was basically the whole plot in a paragraph. I mean, obviously we're going to expand it over the course of, there wasn't an outline. There was like details in there. A few, a few details. I mean, I, we'll have to d- sort out the details of some of the character arcs. But yeah, basically, Khan is back. Kirk has to take him on. Important people die. Sulu loses an eye because <laughs> it's cool. <laughs> and then at the end of the film, Kirk has to go into exile because he takes revenge on Khan. I think it's fairly simple. You can make it work. Okay. That was a lot shorter than what you gave me. I would have probably taken that. The other one was just like, what? I wanted to make sure you know that I've actually thought this out. You, wow. Don't let me catch you on the fan fiction boards, boy. That's just, wow. There's going to be cool black holes for some (laughs) cool set pieces. There's going to be really high emotional stakes. You heard it here first, ladies and gentlemen. (laughs) Hey, J.J. Abrams, I'm available (laughs) if you need another screenwriter. (laughs) Yeah. Honestly, I'm I'm worried, though, that if there is a sequel to Star Trek Into Darkness... Of course there's a sequel. It's already in the works. I'm I'm concerned that they'll just sort of ignore Khan and these other superhumans that have been left over. Again, they ignored Khan for like 20 minutes of the last half of the movie, like... It, they're they're perfectly liable to never mention it again. You know how the uh, Vulcan planet was never mentioned again, <laughs> right? This yeah, this is not going to get mentioned again. I feel like these are major things that will that have dramatic effects. Benedict Cumberbatch fans had their time in the sun, and then that was it. No, give he can come back, okay, and you can actually develop him more. Maybe not on the third one. Maybe in the fourth one, and it would be like. The, the end of Furious 6, and you're like, oh. <laughs> Bring him snap. back. Give him a love interest. Make him make him develop him. Make him three-dimensional. Make him join up Kirk and Spock for some Sharma afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> that should be the post credit scene just for Benedict Cumberbatch fans. It'll be him, uh, Zachary Quinto, and Chris Pine sitting shirtless <laughs> <laughs> for like two minutes. <laughs> In a restaurant. I wasn't even asking for that, but... <laughs> <laughs> Your mind right now is in other planets. <laughs> it is. It is. You've seen... Other galaxies, actually. Now I've given you this pitch, and in my, uh, there's just so many ideas, so many <laughs> things you could do with it. We need it. to walk away from the computer. <laughs> I think is what needs to happen. I think you're right. Okay. Beam me up, Scotty. I need to get out of here. <laughs> it's dangerous. 
Next thing you know, you're going to start yelling at me in Klingon. (laughs) (laughs) I told you I'm not a Trekkie. If I was, who knows what that plot description would have turned into if I was a Trekkie. Prime directives. (laughs) It would have gone off on some epic Patton Oswalt Parks and Rec type. Speech spiel. Well, God okay. bless that man. <laughs> he is a national <laughs> treasure. <laughs> All right. That'll wrap it up for part two of our discussion of Star Trek Into Darkness here on Cinema Fix. Don't forget to tune in next week when we'll be discussing Fast and Furious 6. Uh, we'd love to get your feedback on the show. You can email us at cinemafix at filmgeekradio.com or comment on the website at filmgeekradio.com. Write in. Let us know. What what would you do if you had to remake or reboot Star Trek or, or if you were in charge of the sequel? Would you go my route with the black holes or would you go for the seals? Or would you try to combine them both into one amazing epic movie? Save the internet from black holes. <laughs> Because my other part was maybe save the internet (laughs) with the kittens. (laughs) There could be – oh, see, again, we have to have a scene in Star Trek Three in which someone from the crew is trying to save a kitten from a tree or a seal from a black hole. That just has to be in there. (laughs) No, I'm sorry. The only thing that needs to happen now is there needs to be a gif with the little Enterprise and 8-bit animation – with Union Cat music and the rainbow behind it. I like how you uh, went for the correct pronunciation of GIF. I've been saying it right all along, and everybody else that's like, no, it's Jeff. Well, s- mm, words. <laughs> I haven't been saying it at all. I actually take the approach that I took to the RZA, <laughs> where I call it a GIF. <laughs> I will call the other file a jpeg but the other picture files it's a gif and a png and that's it gif it's not a gif or a ping GIF. or whatever a gif a gif okay <laughs> this show has gone so off the rails <laughs> you are gonna have so much fun i'm trying to editing. close out the show and, and and i can't even do it okay you can subscribe to us through itunes so if you like this episode please write us a review that would really help us get the word out about the show you can also donate to us through the website we really appreciate your help and don't forget to shout out other great shows on film geek radio including the thin place monica where can people find you online People can find me online on Twitter at mcastymovies. That's M-C-A-S-T-I movies. You can also find the same name in Tumblr if you're onto that. Um, And you can also find my work reposted on the Boston Online Film Critics Association website at bofca.com. You can find some of my writing at filmgeekradio.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at writerandrew. If you follow me, be sure to send me a message. Let me know you're a listener, and I will follow you back. Damon Lindelof, if you're listening, I expect a royalty check if you use any of the ideas I mentioned in my pitch. Email me. (laughs) <laughs> and and we'll sort out the details. All right, I'm Andrew Johnson. I'm Monica Castillo. And have fun this weekend, high on cinema, and going where no man has gone before. This has been a Film Geek Radio production. Film Geek Radio. Yeah.